Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Russell Targ to the show today. He is the author of Limitless Mind, Do You See What I See?, The End of Suffering, Miracles of Mind, and many, many more books. He is a pioneer of a protocol and a process that began in 1972 with Hal Putoff called Remote Viewing, which was the real X-Files espionage program. He also worked with Ingo Swan, a very famous psychic and artist who taught him how to do remote viewing. He is retired from Lockheed Martin as a senior staff scientist, where he not only developed laser technology for peaceful applications, but a way to detect wind shear and offered this up to the FAA and to many airlines. It is a great honor to welcome Russell Targ to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. I'm happy to be with you today. I'm so delighted that you're here. I first want to talk about your work as a laser physicist and what it was like to come up with a discovery that would help the airlines and the FAA avoid crashes and how you felt when they didn't use it. Well, when I left my ESP work in 1983, the ESP work had become very classified, and I wanted to be able to write about that. So I quit the Stanford Research Institute program and went back to my roots, which was laser research. But my past decade had been in parapsychology, so I knew that I had to think of something more interesting because Lockheed wouldn't let me start an ESP program. So I had been involved with laser research for my previous incarnation, previous 15 years. And I had always had the idea that you could measure wind velocity by shining a laser into the wind and then measuring the way the frequency of the light scattered back had changed. Like when you listen to a train whistle approaching you, the frequency goes up as the train approaches you and it goes down as it goes away. It's called the Doppler shift. And if the wind is blowing toward you, then the laser frequency is shifted up in frequency. If it's going away from you, it's shifted down. And I had the idea you could use that to measure wind velocity in front of an airplane. Because in the 1980s, there had been half a dozen passenger planes that had crashed in the United States due to wind shear. In the 80s, there are lots of big jets being put into service, and if they run into wind shear, which takes away their airspeed, we don't have to go into how that works, but they're landing or taking off, and suddenly they lose airspeed, and they crash because it takes a long time for an airplane to regain its momentum. That is what we say is that the engine takes many, many seconds to spool up. It's not like a car where you step on the gas and the car moves. Or with a propeller plane, you push the throttle to the wall and the plane speeds ahead. A jet takes quite a while before it notices that you're asking for more power. And when a plane runs into invisible wind shear, by the time it notices that, it's hit the ground. So I had a scheme. In the paper I published, we called it a premonitory wind sensor. It senses the wind many miles in front of the airplane so that the pilot can know in advance what he's going to encounter. I was doing remote sensing at Stanford, looking into the distance, looking into the future with ESP, 
and I moved to Lockheed looking into the future with lasers to save airplanes. And we did that mainly as a NASA program. So what I found is that looking into the future works actually more reliable with ESP than with lasers because the lasers don't work worth a damn when it's raining and the ESP is unaffected by the rain. So, <laughs> How did you feel, though, when the FAA and many airlines weren't interested in adapting your discovery when it could save so many lives? Well, the idea was in the airline industry, safety doesn't sell. No airline is allowed or is interested in saying that my airline is safer than your airline because they don't want the public to think that there's, in fact, any risk or any danger. So no one ever talks about safety. And what they say is that we're self-insured. So if my gadget costs $100,000 for an airplane, they say, well, that would be millions and millions of dollars. We will just buy insurance, and if an airplane crashes, we'll pay off the people from our insurance. So it's kind of self-insurance is what airlines do instead of upgrading their safety. I'm surprised the FAA wouldn't make that mandatory. It would have been a good idea, but by 1990, wind shear was getting to be better understood, and the airlines were training pilots better. Wind shear has a way of fooling pilots. It gives you increased wind speed, and then it takes it all away. It's a kind of sucker game. You're landing, and suddenly your air spirit increases, and you say, oh, good. I can throttle back, and then it's all gone. So pilots are learning about the nature of wind shear. Whenever you hear a plane that crashes during a rainstorm, it's wind shear. But in the past decade, pilots have become more skillful due to training. You probably don't need this expensive system anymore. They probably learn it in simulations, right? Yes, indeed. Oh, great. I think it's still great that you discovered that and offered it up because that could save a lot of lives. And we did hear about crashes for a long time. I was grateful to Lockheed to give me an opportunity to return to laser work after this 15-year hiatus when I was doing psychic stuff. There was a big vote of confidence. What they knew is that in the 60s and 70s, I was well known for my laser work. And even though I'd been doing psychic stuff in the meantime, they did not hold it against me. But I came in with a good idea, and they said, that sounds pretty interesting. If you can sell ESP to the government, you can probably sell wind shear defense to NASA. We'll give you a chance to do that. And that was successful. I was at Lockheed for 12 years doing laser stuff. Speaking of NASA... I read in Do You See What I See, you talked a little bit about Challenger, and that Challenger actually went down not only because of the O-rings, but also because of wind shear. That's right. Richard Feynman demonstrated that a frozen O-ring won't function of the gasket, which many, many people knew at the time. But the O-ring had burned through on previous flights. So NASA was aware that the O-ring wasn't very good in low temperature, but it had managed to hold in previous flights, even though they knew that there was burning. What happened on this particular day is that they launched the Challenger, and then at 35,000 feet, there was a 100-mile-an-hour crosswind, which functioned as a wind shear for the spacecraft, and just ripped off the booster because the struts had been weakened 
from being burned through. See, by 35,000 feet, the spacecraft is almost ready to jettison the booster anyway. So the fact that it had been nibbled away at generally didn't matter if they were just going to get rid of it in moments. But what happened is the wind ripped it off in a violent way, and that's what caused the explosion. And that's in the president's report. NASA does not feature that. I mean, there's always secrecy of these things. NASA doesn't want to say that they were ignorant of this big crosswind at 35,000 feet because that would show that their meteorological system doesn't work, which it doesn't. They would rather blame Firecall, who made the O-rings, and say it's sort of uh, an act of God. We didn't know that it was going to burn through, even though Thiokol knew it was going to burn through and would not give them a waiver. That whole thing is a top-down catastrophe. Lockheed, who was the ground crew at the shuttle at Cape Kennedy, didn't want to launch because it was way below temperature for launching. President Reagan insisted that they launch because he wanted to talk to Krista McCulley during the State of the Union message. So the big driver for launching and the sub-freezing temperature, the president's desire to have a teacher in space during the State of the Union message. So NASA insisted to Lockheed that they launch it. Thiokol, who made the spacecraft, said, no, we won't do it because it's way below our specifications. Lockheed told Thiokol, if you want any money from us, you have to give us a waiver. So the engineer who designed the O-ring said, fire me. It's not going to work. I won't approve it. And the president of Thiokol had to give him a waiver, all for the purpose of allowing Reagan to talk to the teacher. And then they launched it, and it failed. But Lockheed on the ground and the people at Thiokol, many, many people were not surprised that that failed. But it was this top-down craziness from Reagan looking for publicity and a momentary blip in his popularity talking to the teacher that caused the whole thing. That's astounding. I'm writing a book called Disasters, Arrogance, and Greed, talking about many, many instances in the technology world, including Fukushima, where people do really stupid things, where some one person could have stood up and said, we know that that's not going to work. For the Fukushima plant was built 50 feet below where the previous tsunami had hit. That is, on the hillside in Japan, where the power plant was, there were stone markers from the previous tsunami that said, don't build below this stone. And there are villages all along the hill above the stone. But it would be expensive, or it's much more convenient to build the power plant at sea level. So they did that even though there was unambiguous, clear evidence that the previous tsunami 100 years ago was 50 feet higher than the power plant. That was not a surprise to anybody. Total madness. That's right. It happens all the time, I'm sorry to say. You describe remote viewing in Do You See What I See as an ability we all have to a greater or lesser degree that lets us describe and experience activities or events blocked from ordinary perception by distance and time. I couldn't have put it better myself. (laughs) And you constantly reaffirm that we are all capable of being remote viewers. Well, that's my experience. Some of what we say is theory. 
the fact that we all have psychic ability is my lifetime experience teaching remote viewing. And that remote viewing is this ability we have to quiet our minds and look into the distance in the future. And I'm sure that's a evolutionary trait that we had in caveman periods so you'd know if a tiger crawls into your cave and is going to eat you. It would be nice to know that before he springs and bites you. And people have that ability, particularly for emotional material. But it's like a musical ability in that anybody can learn to play the piano a little bit, even if they don't have any talent. But if you don't have talent, no matter how much you practice, it won't get you to Carnegie Hall. Since retiring from Lockheed, I've been teaching remote viewing all over the world. I wrote, Do You See What I See? And people finally realize how old I am. And my idea is that as a result of writing that book, I got a ton of invitations to teach, which is what I was doing. And what I find is that in a workshop where I have 30 or 40 people, everybody will either do something psychic or see something psychic working with a partner. So that in well-conducted experiments where you're asking people to describe little objects hidden in a bag or describe a picture that I'm about to show you, people have no problem doing that. I set the stage, say I'm about to put something in your hand, describe what that feels like, the texture, the shape, the weight, the color, and people can do that very, very well. So my life experience is that people are able to describe what they're going to see. They can either do that or learn to do that swiftly. Do you think as a long-standing, legendary remote viewer and teacher that the discovery of non-locality is one of the greatest revelations that a person will eventually experience when they're learning remote viewing on an experiential level, not just to know it as knowledge? And could you explain it to the audience? Well, non-locality is a idea that Schrodinger, the great physicist who perfected quantum mechanics in the 30s, talked about non-locality and entanglement. It's the idea in physics that particles born together remain attached to one another like identical twins. There's great legendary experiments where one twin gets sick and the other one gets sick, or both twins show up for an interview wearing exactly the same thing, even though they haven't seen one another for many years. The twins born together remain entangled. Similarly, photons that are born together in the same experiment can become entangled so that even though they're traveling away from one another at the speed of light, if you grab one of them and measure its polarization, then that affects the other photon. Einstein did not like that idea because he thought that it violated special relativity, sending a message faster than the speed of light. It appears that this phenomena works quite well, but you can't use it for message sending. So although psychic abilities and ESP in general is a message-sending opportunity, the explanation is that we live in a world that is non-local. The Buddhists have said for thousands of years that separation is an illusion for consciousness. So we live in a non-local world that is a world where certain things are independent of space and time. 
in the ESP arena, for example, one of the things we know is that it's no harder to describe a target object or picture across the world. That's no harder than describing the picture on the table in front of you. Similarly, it's no harder to describe the thing that I'm going to show you tomorrow than it is the thing I'm going to show you today. So describing the future is just as easy as describing the present time. And because psychic functioning has accuracy and reliability that's independent of space and time, we would say that psychic ability is non-local. It's non-local because you can experience things outside of your house, outside of your environment, and it's easy to describe things in the future and in the distance. So that's what we mean by ESP being non-local. In the physics community, things are non-local because the measurement of one particle affects the polarization or behavior of another particle. That physics entanglement is not the explanation for ESP, which many people erroneously claim. The fact that we live in a non-local space-time, non-locality describes the nature of the space-time in which we live, the property of the universe. The universe is non-local. And the non-locality of the universe, the interconnection entanglement that exists in the universe is what allows ESP to work and the entanglement in physics. But the physics entanglement is not the cause of ESP. They're both the result of the nature of the space-time in which we live that permits a variety of unexpected entangled phenomena, including entangled identical twin people, and identical twin particles, and experiments in the laboratory. Henry Stapp, who was chairman of the physics department at the University of California, Berkeley, said the discovery of non-locality may be the most important discovery in all of science. It's certainly one of the most exciting, isn't it? Because it's the first physical demonstration that indeed separation is an illusion in many cases. How do you experience the whole concept of free will if, in fact, through remote viewing and associative remote viewing, we can bypass our present timeline, go back into the past, and go into the future and gather data? Now, free will is a tough question for several reasons. First of all, it would be hard to prove that you have free will. For a variety of reasons, it would be very complicated to demonstrate that you described something freely rather than have it be the effect of something else. But I understand your question. Let's say I've given you three dishes of ice cream, strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate, and you like all of them. It's a hot day. You've got these three dishes of ice cream. And I say, Kim, I want you to relax and freely choose whichever dish of ice cream you want. Just relax and just choose whatever strikes you at the moment. Meanwhile, yesterday in the laboratory, I would have described this experiment to a psychic and said, Kim is going to be sitting in front of these three bowls of ice cream. Can you close your eyes here on Tuesday and tell me what you see her choosing on Wednesday? What is she going to choose? And my psychic on Tuesday will have no problem describing what you freely choose on Wednesday. So you might feel that that interferes with your free will. 
Actually, I don't, not in the way you described it. But then my question is, does it really exist then? <laughs> he knows what you're going to freely choose. The fact that a person can have information about the future doesn't mean that you don't get to choose freely. It just means that we become aware of what you freely choose. No, but what you're doing as a remote viewer is going in and seeing what was chosen before I've chosen. And so my question is, am I really freely choosing anything at that point? I mean, I know I think I am, <laughs> but if it's already happened and the remote viewer is queuing into a future that hasn't happened yet, but from the remote viewing standpoint, it's happened. My question to you existentially is, then do we really have free will? And my sense is yes and no. That's the right answer. Okay. You, ha you have a little free will, but much less than you think you have. Exactly. Okay, that's what I thought. Basically, I'm a determinist. <laughs> that is, I think that things that occur indeed have causes. If I pick up this tumbler, the tumbler rises because I picked it up. It didn't magically levitate off the table. I think that to the extent that you're in touch with your psychic abilities, you can gain some free will. In general, the most common psychic phenomena that people experience in their lives are precognitive dreams, where you have a dream in the evening of something that you're going to experience the following day. and You can learn to recognize those experiences as being unusually clear or bizarre are not part of your ordinary repertoire. So you can wake up and say, gee, I had this very clear dream of driving down the freeway and the steering wheel actually came right off in my hand and I crashed the car in a ball of flame. And I don't want to have that experience. So you can then take your car into the garage and have them check the wheels and check the steering wheel and they might notice that the steering wheel is okay but one of your wheels had lost all of its nuts, and that wheel would soon come loose. So you don't have to die in a ball of flame. The garage can fix that. But there was some non-actualized future. The psychic can see into the future what might have happened. But you can use your psychic abilities or your awareness of precognition not to have the terrible experience. That's fantastic. Now, I saw in one of your interviews when you did talk about precognitive dreams, correct me if I'm wrong, by writing your dreams down, it helps to increase your precognitive dream ability. Is that correct? Yes, it is correct. Writing, is it's well known among dream researchers, and Jung talks about that in his wonderful book, Dreams, Memories, and Reflections, that when he became interested in dreams, he found that if he had a dream notebook next to his bed, and as soon as he awakened, he would write down the dream he had. And you want to do that before you get up to go to the bathroom or wash your face, because moving your big muscles erases the dream from your memory, unfortunately. So if you want to remember your dreams and record them, you should do it immediately upon awakening and just write that down in a notebook and then you'll develop a collection of dreams, and you can learn which dreams are precognitive and which are the ordinary day's residue of anxiety and wish fulfillment, so forth. You also assert that there's a way to distinguish the two. That's right. Your anxiety dreams or dreams from the previous day's residue or wish fulfillment dreams 
are just as I've said. So if, if I have an exam coming up and I have a dream about failing for the exam and I hadn't studied for it, we would not consider that precognitive. It's just what you'd expect. But if I have a dream about a hippopotamus walking down my neighborhood street in Palo Alto, and that's never happened. I've never seen a hippopotamus <laughs> in California. And it was really a realistic dream. I wrote that down. I would assume that either I'm going to see that in the movies or see it on television or animals going to break loose from the zoo. That if I have a sort of out of context, preternaturally clear, a hyper clear dream, then I assume that that's stimulated by something I'm going to see at a later time. Rather than things I'm anxious about, the previous day's residue. If I went to a waterfall yesterday and then dream about a waterfall tonight, uh, I wouldn't consider that precognitive, obviously. Right. The biggest source of my precognitive dreams are the front page of the New York Times, which I see upon awakening. The first thing I do in the morning when I get up is grab a cup of coffee and sit down in front of my computer, and my homepage is the New York Times. So the first thing I see is whatever picture is on the front page of the New York Times, and I frequently have a awakening dream related to what that picture is. Is that because you want to know? Have you programmed yourself to no, want to see that? No, it's just the first interesting thing that appears in my awareness in the morning. <laughs> okay. Uh, another source of precognitive dreams for me are things that I see in the movies. If I'm going to a movie the next evening, I will occasionally have dreams stimulated by funny things that happen in the movie. And I've gotten pretty good at recognizing that, so I can tell my wife that I saw this strange thing, and I bet that's going to be in the movie. The day I was going to see the brand new Woody Allen film, Midnight in Paris, I woke up and I was seeing a picture of a man in a bright green shirt. And that just made no sense to me. There's no reason that I would have such a dream. I'm not worried about that. I haven't seen it. So I, I mentioned that to my wife. And in fact, in the opening credits, there's a painter who you see filling the screen in a bright green shirt. It was exactly what I had described. So you can learn when something crazy or unbidden comes into your awareness that's probably from what's going to happen the next day. You had written on page 136 in Do You See What I See that the airplanes on 9-11 were unusually empty, actually all four planes. Now, that's a very sensitive observation to put into a book. Could you share about that? On September 10th, the day before 9-11, I flew to Italy. I had a peace conference scheduled to attend on 9-11, which I attended in Assisi, Italy. So on 9-11, I was at a courtyard by the Church of St. Francis, standing in a big circle, probably not singing Kumbaya because we're in Italy, but somebody was wishing for world peace. And then a messenger came running into our circle and said that this calamity had happened in New York. And I couldn't get any information because CNN is in Italian. So it was very hard to understand what was going on. So the next day, I got the International Herald Tribune, and that had a long article, of course, and that sort of listed in distress 
how many people had been killed on each of these big transcontinental airplanes. This was 9-11. I was just three years away from being intensely involved in airplane safety. So I had a dozen years at Lockheed, intimately concerned with how many people are on these airplanes. And I could see in a glance that all four of these planes were less than half full. What we call a load factor. What percentage of the people, the load factor for the four airplanes together was under 40%, which is shocking. Because if you think about an airplane these days, they're jammed to pieces, especially the morning flight of a transcontinental plane is normally filled. I knew that experiments had been done like data had been collected on this subject 30 years before pertaining to train crashes on the east coast of the U.S., where people stay off railroad trains that are going to crash in the future. And here it was obvious from this write-up, which has been big literature on this in Google, if you're interested. It's not controversial. It's evident that these planes were anomalously empty on the day that they all crashed. Why do you think they were empty? Well, the apparency, the phenomenological answer to your question is, Lots of people woke up that morning and decided not to fly. So I have to decide that there's a backwards ripple in time where people were psychically aware, intuitively aware that something bad was going to happen on that day and chose to fly some other day. So it's like a phenomenon where people do get that information. I mean, for example, I was in the air the previous day. I was early for my conference. If I had not flown out on the 10th, I wouldn't have been able to teach in Italy because the planes were grounded for the next week. So I was rewarded for being my usual obsessive self to make sure I was there a couple of days early for a workshop. So it's obvious that hundreds of people decided not to fly that day. With all of the remote viewing experience and psychic experience and expertise you have over 30 years' time, have you remote viewed anything in terms of the well-being of the planet or areas to live or geographic catastrophes or anything that is of concern to you that you're able to share in the present time? Nothing on the global concern. I'm a remote viewing teacher rather than a remote viewer. I'm sort of a journeyman remote viewer. I'm able to do remote viewing as well as any other not particularly talented person. When I was leaving SRI... I knew I was going to stop working there because it becomes so classified. I visualized what it looked like. I asked myself a question. Eventually, I'm going to have a new job someplace. What does that look like? What does that building look like? And I was able to get a pretty good visual image of the place where I would be working. And it was unfamiliar to me, so it wasn't super helpful at the time, but when I went for an interview to Lockheed, I instantly recognized that this was the building of my dreams, and I was felt confident that this was going to work out, because I had already seen that building in answer to my question, where would I be working? Now, when you trained others in remote viewing, even to this day, do you recommend that they actually build their own Faraday cage, or... No, no, Faraday cage is not necessary. Many years ago, Andrea Puharic, who's a physician, early ESP researcher, 
used a Faraday cage because he had the idea that people would do better in a Faraday cage if you shielded out electromagnetic interference, and that worked for him. In our case, we started working with Uri Geller, the Israeli psychic and magician, and I was concerned that he had worked with Puharich, the very skillful inventor, and Puharich was skillful in micro-miniature electronics, and I was worried that Geller and Puharich would trick us with some radio transmitter. We didn't want to have to search Geller for radio transmitters, so what we did is we did our work inside of a high-quality Faraday cage, which would not permit uh, radio transmission inside. You could bring your little radio in the cage and close the door, and it's obvious that no signals get through. So we did that as a safeguard when we worked with Uri Geller. What we found out from subsequent work is that our very experienced remote viewers like Pat Price and Ingo and Hella Hammond liked working there. They felt that it was a better environment, that their pictures were clearer, the signal was better, the reception was better. So it turned out that people like working in that. However, when I teach in other cases, we taught a whole group of people in Army Intelligence to do remote viewing on the East Coast. They're the people who appear in the recent movie, Men Who Stare at Goats. That was the East Coast Psychic Corps of people that we trained. And they didn't use Faraday cages, and the remote viewing was excellent. That program was in business for almost 20 years. Do you ask your students to close their eyes or to open their eyes when they're learning remote viewing? Close their eyes. For example, if you were doing this now, I would say I have an unusual object that I've just picked up. Very interesting-looking, unusual object. Now I want you to close your eyes, take a deep breath, and describe the surprising thing that appears in your awareness. But when you just close your eyes, something surprising will show up. And in general, in remote viewing, in a good experiment... I will choose something that's not easily recognizable because I don't want you to guess what it is. And I tell people, don't try and guess. Naming is the worst thing you can do. And a remote viewer simply wants to quiet her mind and courageously describe the surprising thing that pops into your awareness. You don't know what it is, but you can say, I see such and such a shape or form. And you can do that. Do you want me to? If you'd like to. Oh, my God. Let me close my eyes. Hold on. <laughs> now, you're not going to name it. You're no. You're going to describe the surprising thing that shows up, just the shape or the form, what comes into view. Uh, it looks like part of a body. What are you experiencing that makes you say a part of a body? I'm seeing round, glass-like texture. I see what looks like a face. So the first thing you said is, is round and glass-like? Yeah. Well, just for fun, because we're on the air, would you like me to tell you what I have? Yeah. I have a large magnifying glass. Oh, my God. And it looks like a femur bone. It's a illuminated magnifying glass, so it has a perhaps four-inch rectangular white handle, and then quite unusually, this big three-inch 
diameter glass is set to the side as an angle just the way your hip bone is. Wow. So you've got a round hip bone that's offset from the femur that's connected to that hip bone. Does that make sense? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The ball on the top of your hip bone is, is not right on top. It's offset. You probably remember that from every leg of lamb you've ever had. Yes. But the thing right in front of my face is, in fact, a round glass-like object because it's this quite large magnifying glass in a frame. Wow, and I was getting a pair of glasses, what looked like was on Groucho Marx, these huge pair of glasses. (laughs) So isn't that interesting? Yeah. Complete surprise, no meditation, didn't have to pay me thousands of dollars to learn to be psychic, and being on the air besides. And you also say that first impressions are extremely critical. That's right. Why? So this is a natural ability. It's the idea that the first thing that comes into your awareness before you start to do analysis or memory or imagination, where you said that reminds me of anatomy, that's okay. And in a remote viewing session, I would say, Tim sees something anatomical, I would say, draw that. And we'd call that analytical overlay because saying you see something anatomical is your analysis of what you're seeing. Sure. It's just that most of us don't use the descriptive language to articulate what we're seeing in terms of a physical observation. That's principally what I teach. And this is not a new idea. Padmasambhava, the great Buddhist teacher of the 8th century, knew all about that. And he said, as you move your awareness from the ego and conditioned awareness, as you move into spaciousness, you have to give up naming and grasping and just describe things as they are. So that was all explicitly understood in the 8th century. He wrote a book called Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. And he realized that our ego and our desire to grasp and name things distorts what we experience. A Buddhist idea pertaining to psychic abilities is that we give all the meaning there is to everything we experience. The Buddhists annoyingly say we live in a world that's empty. They talk a lot about emptiness. It's the great contribution of Buddhists to the idea of emptiness. But they're not saying something silly. They're not saying that there's no tumblers or pencils. They're saying that the universe is not empty of stuff. It's empty of meaning. And then you provide the meaning. So in this little episode, little experiment you and I did, you quite naturally wanted to ascribe meaning to what you were experiencing. And my job as an interviewer, in this case, I knew what the object was, but I would do it exactly the same. In a case, it's a double blind. I would say, don't tell me the name of the thing. Just tell me what you're experiencing. So we went from a piece of anatomy, which is the first thing you said, which is quite correct, when I said, well, just don't name it, just tell me what you see. And then you see, I see this round glass-like something or other. And that was exactly the right answer. I think it's like anything. Wasn't that easy? Yeah, it's shockingly accessible. This is the marvel of this work. It's shockingly accessible. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, that's why it's fun to teach it. I mean, it's, it's no fun to teach something that people can't do. I used to do magic as a teenager. Now I have a chance to do genuine magic without fooling people. I will have an object in a bag, and at some point I'll tell people I have brought something for you, and I want you to describe what I've brought. And, of course, this is, again, not double-blind, but if I've brought a suitably interesting thing that people can do surprisingly well at describe what I'm going to show them in a little while. What's the distinction, then, between the capacity that you're bringing out in people through your teaching, right, and the protocol itself? In a certain sense, I'm not teaching anything. I'm just giving people permission to do remote viewing. It's as though I have a physics class that I'm telling them about a unicycle. They have this interesting new kind of vehicle. It has no handlebars. It just has one wheel and a seat and pedals. What do you think of that? People say that's ridiculous. It has no stability in any dimension. It won't go by itself. It has no inertia. That's a crazy thing. And it's impossible, and they would be quite right until somebody comes riding by on a unicycle, and then everybody's mind is instantly changed because they've now seen somebody riding this impossible-to-ride object, and that's a complete change in paradigm once you see that. Similarly, the remote viewing, as we were able to use psychic abilities to help find Patricia Hurst, the heiress who's kidnapped and made a lot of money in the stock market and found a downed airplane. We did a number of remarkable things for the government over this long period of time. It's gained great acceptance. And, of course, other people, Daryl Bem, psychologist at Cornell, has just published a big paper showing that people can indeed see what's in the future and make use of that. His very cool experiment that I like the most is that he showed that it's very efficacious to study for your exam after you've taken it. (laughs) Studying in the future helps your performance. And the experiment he did is one of a number of experiments. He would show the student 40 words on the computer screen and say, try and remember as many of these as you can. And then he would take away the image and say, now, write down all the ones you can remember. And that's the end of that. He would then say, out of those 40 words, I've now chosen 10, and I want you to write down those 10 on the screen. And then I want you to decide whether those 10 are animal, vegetable, or mineral, and write that down. And it turns out, that in analyzing the words that they were able to remember in the beginning, the words they remembered out of the first 40 would have a higher number of ones that they had selected at a later time. After you had made your choice and written down the words you could remember, it turns out the words you remember were the ones you studied after the exam. That is so fascinating. So this is how the future affects the past. And the present, right? Yes. So wouldn't it be a smart thing in remote viewing to task the future to make decisions in the present? I mean, isn't that what it is? Well, I frequently will do that in a restaurant where I'm looking at a menu, an unfamiliar restaurant. I would just scan the menu and say, what will I be happy eating? 
in a certain sense, I say what looks good, which is what we all do. But I do that in a way, say, I'm going to be eating something in a few minutes. What should I choose here that will make this a nice experience? And that works very well for me. I could do that with a dowsing pendulum also. Douse over your menu and say, well, what here is poisonous and what's delicious? Are you a pretty good dowser? I'm not bad. I surprised myself at dowsing another thing that's quite easy to do. They tend to complement each other, both dowsing and remote viewing, even though they're different. I would say so. For example, Pat Price was a great psychic who worked with us. And early in our program, we were called by the Berkeley Police Department when Patricia Hurst, the San Francisco heiress, was kidnapped by the SLA. And the police had no idea where she was. And my colleague, Hal Putoff, and I went with the great psychic, Pat Price, to the Berkeley Police Department. And they talked to Price and said, we have a number of questions to ask you. And Price, who's himself a no-nonsense policeman, said, no, I just want to see your mug book, and I'll tell you who did it. So they pulled out this big loose-leaf notebook, and Price just stood at an oak table and turned the pages of this mug book, which had four pictures per page. And he turned the pages and turned the pages, and then after we'd gone through about 40 or 50 pictures, he put his finger on one guy and he said, that's the ringleader. And that was Donald DeVries, known as Sin Q. And they said, well, we know who that is because he walked away from a minimum security prison a year ago, but we haven't heard from him since. And a few days later, Sin Q surfaced as indeed the ringleader. But right after Price identified Donald DeVries as a ringleader of the SLA, the police said, well, where did they go? Like in every movie, they say, which way did they go? <laughs> right. They said, well, they went that way. They went north. I see a white station wagon parked by a restaurant on the highway to cross the street from some big gas storage tanks near a pedestrian overpass. And one of the detectives said, well, I know where that is. That's on the way to Vallejo, north of Berkeley. And they dispatched a cruiser, and within 10 minutes, they had the car still with cartridges rolling around on the floor of the car that they could identify as the cartridges we had seen in Patricia Hearst's bedroom an hour before. So Price was still sitting in the police station in Berkeley, and one minute he was able to identify the ringleader, and two minutes later, he told them where to go to find the police car. That's amazing. So that's very high-quality psychic functioning. Who taught him remote viewing? Did you? No, no, indeed not. He was a natural psychic. Ingo Swan wrote a book called Natural ESP, where he talks about how to develop your psychic ability. So Ingo and Pat were natural psychics. They were psychic all their lives. Uh, the CIA asked us to bring in somebody who is not a psychic, can I find somebody who will be a control subject, and that's you, or my friend Hella Hammond, who is a Life magazine photographer, and she thought it would be very entertaining to be part of a government ESP program, and she and I liked each other, so we're happy to work together. And she was brought into the control with no previous experience and turned out to be the most reliable person we'd ever worked with. 
wow. for, for a decade. She didn't bring in the accuracy that Pat Price did, describing all the nuts and bolts and how high is the tower and how big is the swimming pool in inches and feet. She couldn't do that, but she made very few errors. She was very excellent at separating the psychic signal from the mental noise. So even though we brought her in as a control subject, she turned out to be very reliable. And do you see what I see? I describe all these characters and what they were able to do and give an idea about how you can get in touch with your psychic abilities. I thought it was interesting that there was a lot of philosophical things in there, too, also about your primary relationship to your parents, your wives, your daughter, Bobby Fisher. A lot of very personal things about you. I had a question about the part of you that said, contrary to the secret, I don't believe that impoverished people have attracted their poverty. This has been one of my biggest issues with some of the material in The Secret. I wondered if you could speak about that. Well, this is a Calvinist view of the undeserving poor. The rich are rich because God blessed them, and the poor are poor because they don't work hard or they're not deserving. And that's really the Republican view today. That is, we've got to support the richest Americans. We can't tax them because of the kind of trickle-down economics. The idea that you feed oats to the biggest horses and the poor people can get the leftover oats from the manure. That's trickle-down economics. And the idea in the secret is that people are poor because they don't attract wealth. And my opinion is that people are poor because they're often born into poverty or they're not educated rather than anything about themselves. There are people in Appalachia who are poor because they have never known a person who had a job. I read the book, The Immortal Cells of Henrietta Locks. Henrietta Locks made the H-E-L-A cells that are now the immortal cells that are used in cell research and cancer research. Her whole society, her whole community of brothers and sisters and children were dirt poor live even though they were in the shadow of Johns Hopkins Hospital. They're completely poor, completely uneducated. Nobody had ever gone to school. Nobody ever worked. And I think it's really insulting to say that they're living in dire poverty because they don't have the right mental attitude. Their circumstances were terrible. I agree with you. I wanted to hear you say it because it was one of the things in The Secret that really Got it's me like angry. blaming the afflicted, the guy in the wheel, say, if you just got up and ran, you would be able to get along better. So I can't run. My legs were blown off in the war. I'm not able to run. That's why I'm in the wheelchair. And the idea of blaming the poor and blaming the afflicted for their affliction, I think, is insulting, inappropriate. You shared quite intimately about getting colon cancer and surviving it and actually choosing to have surgery and dealing with it. You seemed like you were able to easily transcend that situation that may have killed other people. I wondered if you had anything to say about that beyond what you wrote in the book. Well, colon cancer is easily treatable with a permanent colostomy. At the time that was coming up for me, as now 25 years ago, I was aware from the medical literature that some people don't want a colostomy, they would rather die than have that done, and indeed they get to die pretty quickly. But my life experience 
is that having a colostomy and a colostomy bag does not interfere with my life in any way. can go swimming, can be a lover, can have girlfriends, travel around the world. Having a colostomy in no way interferes with my life activity. There are even football players who have had colostomies. So it's an idea that gets a bad rap in literature, but with modern medicine, it in no way interferes with the person's life and gives them a life instead of dying. I was aware that people should say, oh, no, I would never do that. That doesn't seem attractive, and then they get to die. That was not my choice. Now, you had other health issues after that later, right? Yes, I have. And how are you doing? I'm just fine. I'm 77 years old. I've just finished a book called The Reality of ESP that will come out next year with Quest Books. We can talk about that. I'm calling that a physicist proof of psychic abilities. There are a lot of people interested in parapsychology who have spent their whole life doing ESP research who still don't believe in it. So this is sort of a tougher book, arguing for the reality of psychic ability, and I've just finished that. I can't wait to read that book. You were very close with Bobby Fischer. Oh, we were friends. I, I mean, he was my wife's brother, so when I lived in New York and he was 15, I saw a lot of Bobby. After that, he was traveling all over the world playing chess. I didn't see him very much. You had spent a few pages in your book about what happened to him, and it obviously upset you enough to get, oh, well, there you know. People always took advantage of him, and that's what upset me. The people stole his money and took advantage of him, and then President Bush put him in jail for playing chess with Boris Spassky in Yugoslavia. There was a trade embargo, and the only thing that the U.S. did pertaining to that whole trade embargo was to try and put Bobby Fischer in jail. That was President Bush's big accomplishment, and he was in a Japanese prison for eight months. They took the greatest chess player in the world and put him in prison for eight months for playing chess in Yugoslavia, and I consider that really obscene. It was a terrible thing to have done. And you did a lot to get him help, didn't you? Yes. A number of other people eventually interested the Icelandic government to give Bobby citizenship, and he was able to get out of jail in Japan. It was reprehensible that the Japanese played ball with the Americans. Bobby had been living with his girlfriend in Japan, and the Japanese government imprisoned him at the request of George W. Bush. With the connivance of the Japanese... George Bush put the greatest chess player in the world in prison for eight months for having played chess in Yugoslavia 12 years before. I consider that just a terrible thing to have done. I wanted to mention it because it was obviously very important to you. So I turn over all the stones that tell you where all the bodies are buried. It's a pretty forthcoming biography. It really is. I think it's pretty courageous. And we haven't even gotten to sex on the astral plane. We'll give give your <laughs> something to look forward to. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Russell Targ. We have been talking about his recent book, Memoirs of a Blind Biker, Do You See What I See, Lasers in Love, ESP and the CIA, and the Meaning of Life. You can buy his books and connect with him by going to ESPResearch.com. And, Russell, we hope to have you back again. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I'm happy to chat with you.
拜拜。